The hymn that we just sang may be new to many of you. It's not one that I think we've sung at Trinity Cathedral, certainly not in, in recent history, but it's a hymn with a really interesting story. Uh, in 2018, just a few years ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin, Justin Welby, presented the Thomas Cramner Award for Outstanding Contributions to Anglican Worship to the composer of this hymn. It's composed and written by Dr. Kon Yong Yi, who is one of the leading Korean composers writing today. Dr. Yi is a professor of music at a university in Seoul, also the director of music at the Anglican Cathedral in Seoul. He's sort of like the, he's the Bruce Neswick, if you, if you like, of Korean church music. And this hymn, Come Now, O Prince of Peace, which was composed in the early 90s, has appeared since its, since its, since its writing in dozens of Christian hymnals all over the world, thanks to the Iona community and to the World Council of Churches who first commissioned it. Dr. Yi is the son of an Anglican priest. He was born in what became North Korea just before the demarcation of the Korean Peninsula following the Second World War. And his family fled south when he was just six years old. And so this hymn was actually imagined and written in that context. It's a prayer. It's a prayer for the reunification of North and South Korea, a prayer for the reconciliation of the Korean people. And you can hear, I think, in the music, the, the deep longing, the anguish, and the grief in this tune that Dr. Yi composed for his words, which were rendered in English by a Canadian nurse and poet, Marion Pope. Come now, O Prince of Peace, make us one body. Come now, O Lord Jesus, reconcile your people. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. The Korean people know that. That's actually, the, those are the words of the American poet Robert Frost, who wrote more than 100 years ago in his famous poem, Mending Wall, something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen ground swell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun and makes gaps, even two can pass abreast. In Frost's poem, it's springtime in New England. A farmer and his neighbor meet up to repair the stone fence line that divides their two properties. And the speaker in the Frost poem has some mixed feelings about this activity. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, he begins. And that something seems at first to be the earth itself, right? Which does everything she can to tear that wall down winter after winter. And so the two guys walk along the wall. They're putting the stones back into place. And the farmer is a little jokey with his friend, right? He says, you know, my apple trees are never going to get across to eat the cones under your pines. Uh, but the, but the, the crusty Yankee neighbor simply nods along and repeats the conventional folk wisdom, right? Good fences make good neighbors. He repeats it a couple times in the poem. Good fences make good neighbors. The name of the poem is Mending Wall. And the title carries a, a kind of deep ambiguity. Is, is mending meant as a verb, as in these guys are in the process of mending the wall? Or is it meant as a participle, as in the wall which mends? Because that's exactly what happens, ironically. This activity, this practice of rebuilding their wall every spring, it seems, is how these two farmers maintain their relationship. Good fences make good neighbors can be understood, as it usually is, as a statement about boundaries, right? You stay in your lane, I'll stay in mine, and we'll love one another better as long as we don't get too close. In the context of the poem, though, the folk wisdom actually contains a deeper nugget of truth. The process of maintaining good boundaries is what keeps us in relationship with one another. In that sense, repairing the wall, mending the wall, becomes a symbol for mending a broken relationship. Maybe it's the wall that is keeping these two guys tethered. Maybe 
It's the thing that is also keeping them from a deeper relationship. So the writer of Ephesians, who is writing under the name of the Apostle Paul, although almost certainly after Paul's death, that writer believes that Christ is a kind of mending wall for all kinds of conflict, whether that's individual, communal, national. This writer says he is our peace. He is our peace. Jesus is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. And there's a lot of scholarly questions around what exactly the writer is referring to with that strange, actually, it's a very unusual phrase in Greek, the dividing wall. He might mean the outer wall of the Jerusalem temple. He might mean the Torah itself, this set of texts and customs and practices that defined and constituted, continued to define and constitute the people of Israel. This writer might mean the practice of circumcision, which in the first couple decades of the Christian movement was a pretty major dividing wall of hostility between various camps of Jesus' early followers. So it's hard to say, but the point seems to be for this writer that whatever divisions are at work in a community, whether they're political, social, religious, ideological, the divisions this writer suggests have already been overcome, right? All of that arguing divisiveness, all of that grouping, in-group and out-group stuff, all of that lies in the past for this writer. It's not actually a, like a reminder to get along with your neighbors. It's actually a pretty profound theological statement about what this new community, which this writer names the church, what this mixed community of Jews and Gentiles can be and already is in some ways. There are no divisions among you, really. That's this writer's cry. The reconciliation and the unity that are promised in Christ, all of that has already taken place. That's actually how this writer understands the point of Jesus' death, right? This is not an understanding that like, Jesus died on the cross to take away my sins so I can go up to heaven when I die, right? For this writer, Jesus' death means something else entirely, that in the suffering of Christ on the cross, somehow all human Suffering and division, including the, the suffering that we experience from estrangement, all of that hostility that people experience when they form themselves into families and communities and in-groups and out-groups and nations, all of that has been encompassed and contained and healed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every division is a false division for this writer. Every wall is a dividing wall. There's no such thing for the writer of Ephesians. There's no such thing as a mending wall. Something there is doesn't love a wall. And for this writer, that something is God, who is at work reconciling every division through Jesus, who has already overcome every estrangement we experience. And this writer uses a, a powerful word with a really important context to describe this new reality that Jesus is inviting his followers to inhabit. It's a word with a, with a, deep, a deep past in the Jewish tradition. It's the word that the psalmist uses to describe the, the dwelling place of God. That word is shalom, right? Salam in Arabic. It's peace. That's usually how we translate it. But in the ancient Near Eastern context, peace, shalom, doesn't really mean absence of conflict. It actually has nothing to say about absence of conflict. It's a word that describes a deep and abiding sense of, of wholeness. A better translation, I think, might be something like healing. He is our healing, not he is our peace. We, the walking wounded, right? We, the ones who have been scarred over by battles and divisions and anger and hostility that we face in the world, and sometimes the anger and hostility that has infected and gotten deep into our hearts. I mean, who, who pissed you off this week? Who hurt you? Who made you angry? 
The way I usually find out about this is like, who am I having an imaginary argument with in my head as I'm getting into the shower or driving in the car or walking around town or whatever. And usually what I've discovered is like, I'll find myself having this imaginary fight, cutting somebody to the quick with the power of my words. And I'll realize, oh, Nathan, what you're dealing with has absolutely nothing to do with that person. <laughs> what are you really doing? And what I've learned, actually, is that usually, and I don't know if this is true for men uh, or if this is a universal human experience, but what presents as anger for me is usually a code name for grief. And that's actually, I think, the question that our scriptures are nine times out of ten really interested in, in poking into. What do we do with our anger what do we do with our grief? A couple years ago, I found myself at a retreat center in Central Oregon. I was settling into, it was a, it was a monastery. I'm settling into some very Spartan accommodations here at the monastery. It's a retreat center run by monks. It's designed to be simple and quiet. The idea was I was going to be on a silent retreat, right? It was this beautiful place. I had a view of the pond, surrounded by nature. I'd been working really hard. I was kind of exhausted. And there was this little brochure on the desk that kind of gave some, like, some framing ideas for how to engage a silent retreat. And there at the top of the brochure in bold print was this line from Mark's gospel that Matthew just read for us, the words that Jesus speaks to his disciples once they come back from their work out in the world, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest for a while. And that was the top of the brochure, come away to a deserted place. I thought, oh, here I am, perfect. Mark tells us, you know, in the context of Mark's gospel that they're super busy, everybody's coming and going, and they had no leisure, Mark said, even to eat. So Jesus says, come away to a deserted place. And those are, right, like those are great words to start a retreat with, come away to a deserted place by yourselves, like, oh, yes, deep breath, right, center myself, it's going to be silence, I'm going to gaze at the pond and the green grass and think deep and holy thoughts about God and have my soul revived, just like Psalm 23 talks about, right? Still pastures, the, or green pastures, still waters, my cup runneth over. In the context of Mark's story, though, that line, come away to a deserted place by yourselves and rest, that's the setup for a joke, right? Because as soon as Jesus and the disciples reach their retreat center, they are inundated by people, once again, and Jesus has compassion on them. And you can kind of imagine the disciples like, you've got to be kidding me. Like he just told us to come away to a deserted place by, themselves, by ourselves. And now he's like inviting all these people. Like he's ruining our retreat. Jesus ruins the retreat. Just when they think they might catch a break, he's got more stuff for them to do. He begins to heal people as if to say, you know, you guys might think you can find shalom up on a mountaintop. Maybe you can. But Mark is actually, I think, interested in kind of undermining that idea that retreat from the world is the place of restoration and wholeness. Mark is far more interested in like Jesus and the disciples down among the angry, needy, frantic, worried, hurting people. That's where healing happens, which means that's actually where they find shalom. That's where they find peace. Mark is not interested in, you know, isolated individual experiences of peace. Shalom is imagined as a kind of, you know, not a kind of blissed out peacefulness that we find in stillness, but it's recontextualized as the experience of being with people in their neediness and in their grief and in their anger. It's the most frustrating illustration of shalom that I can imagine, especially as an introvert. I don't like this at all. Mark is not an introverted gospel. Mark is an extrovert's gospel. I've got a bone to pick with this guy, but there it is, right? The Bible, on the whole, is not actually interested in individualized experiences of personal restoration. Self-care is not one of Jesus' top priorities. <laughs> but healing always is, 
right? Shalom always is. Restoring broken relationships, that actually seems to be the kind of, the kind of healing that Jesus suggests, Mark suggests anyway, through Jesus, is the closest we can come, maybe, to experiencing the kingdom of God. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. Nature works against them every single time. In the Frost poem, in our, in our world, some, the thing that doesn't love a wall, I suspect, might be that part of us that is longing to be reconnected, especially after, you know, a year and a half of isolation. The part of us that longs to be connected to one another, to the one who made us, the part of us that carries the imprint of the creator. Robert Frost did not actually... Uh, he did not love the way that his poem got used, especially in the 60s and the 70s, as a kind of simple plea for, for tolerance. He says it was spoiled by being applied, which I think is interesting, fair enough. Later in his life, he wrote, I could have done better for them, probably for the generality, by saying something there is that doesn't love a wall and something there is that does. Because most of us, caught down here in our broken systems and dysfunctional families and imperfect relationships, the resentments and anger and trauma and grief that we hang on to, right? most of us know pretty well that there is something in us that actually needs a wall. Walls keep us safe. We need boundaries, right? And there's actually nothing wrong when someone has hurt me or someone I love with that instinctive impulse to protect and to shelter. Not every relationship is destined to last forever. And I'm, I'm always a little bit suspicious of naive Christian writers who make these strident calls for unity in Christ that doesn't actually cost them anything. For those of us who have chosen to leave a family or a community, choosing to break a relationship for the sake of physical or emotional safety, this jejun call to just reconcile everything and everybody into one big melting pot of Christian love sounds kind of like an imperialist threat. Just whose vision of unity are we really talking about? Because the danger when we start talking about unity, especially in a church context, I'm especially in a, an Anglican cathedral, is that it becomes a code word for everybody just laying aside their differences and coming on board with my project. Unity can be a pretty dangerous tool in that respect. It can be a tool of colonialism, a tool of supremacy and patriarchy, a tool of empire, right? A tool of domination that can end up doing quite a lot of damage depending on whose idea of unity is being suggested as the right one. So in that sense, I think unity or peace, the absence of conflict, which is usually how we understand peace, right? that word runs the danger of being heard as the promise of safety. And if I've learned anything over the past year, it's that God does not promise to keep us safe. Safety is not a gospel value. But healing is. Wholeness is. Shalom, right? This deepest kind of peace. This is what Jesus promises. He is our peace. That's what Ephesians says. He is our shalom. Not we all play nice with one another when we're worshiping in his name. He is the thing that grounds us. Which makes me think that maybe as a way of pulling back from a, a cheap and easy call to unity as a way of policing our differences, I want to juxtapose that beautiful text from Ephesians this longing, this heartfelt longing for the Prince of Peace to come among us, I want to juxtapose that 
with the ambiguity, maybe even the warning, embodied in Robert Frost's poem. Maybe fences are not such a bad thing after all. What if we think about them not so much as barriers that keep us one from another, but rather as a mending wall that might actually represent a, a, a much healthier way, actually, to be in relationship with difference than imagining that we can all just kind of come into the same thing, set aside our differences, and become images of one another, as if what God wants is all of us to be a kind of lockstep groupthink kind of thing. Repairing the wall, right? Mending fences. That's actually the old image that Frost is playing with, right? Mending the wall in the poem becomes the way that these two crusty old farmers remain friends. Or if not friends, because <laughs> they're New Englanders, at least they remain neighbors. And I'm actually a lot more interested in neighborliness than I am in unity. Jesus actually has a lot more to say about what it means to be a neighbor than he does about everybody kind of coming into the same, the same thing. Maybe it's time to set aside this, you know, mosh pit unity project for a season and instead think a little bit differently around fence mending. Good fences make good neighbors. That's sometimes seen as the problem, right? But good fences, I love that word because good fences makes me think about the good shepherd, right? The one who is the one who calls us to be repairers of the breach, the one who walks with us as we negotiate these boundaries, as we seek to be in relationship with, with one another despite our differences. If we can build the kind of fences that the Good Shepherd invites us to, I think we might find something that starts to look a little bit more like shalom. <laughs>